There are some situations in life that, that come upon us and can seem overwhelming, sometimes even embarrassing, feeling like we're, we're left on our own. You ever felt this way before? Everyone else in life can look so put together. You see a neighbor in the store and can seem very organized, their children well-behaved, seemingly floating from one day to the next without any concerns or worries. There are some people that we come in contact with that, that look completely free of any troubles. Perhaps you come into church this morning and see lots of people that way, all, all put together. No, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you come into church on Sunday all disheveled, crying, and put out. I do appreciate the fact that you clean yourselves up and, and you clear calendars and you prepare to come and worship with others. I can just observe how awkward it feels to come into a place like worship gathered together and, and feel like a loser on the inside. Perhaps even feeling like you've been forgotten. Like whatever's transpiring in your life has you at a situation where you feel like no one cares. Everyone else in, at work maybe or in the neighborhood it seems wealthy and happy and the happy waves of cheerful greetings, the sun shining in the morning can feel even more worthless or discarded. And if we're honest, part of the problem may be the fact that we don't understand the purpose behind suffering or pain that we're experiencing. I've had more meetings and text messages and phone calls with people who receive very hard news from the doctor or, or pink slip from, from their employer or some other extreme difficulty. And they, and they seem to ask the question most commonly, where is God in all of this? Where is God in the midst of this trial? Have you ever felt like you've been forgotten? Have you ever experienced the pain of rejection? Cast out, pushed aside, rejected and forgotten. I suppose this is probably what Joseph might have felt as we come to the 39th chapter of Genesis. He, he seems possibly to be experiencing this, forgotten, forgotten by God, thrown into prison and left to rot. Life has not been easy for this teenager, 17-year-old teenager. Does God have a purpose for all the suffering that he's experiencing? Will, will God give answers and will it happen soon? Is, is God's timetable worthy of our trust? Will God come through for me? Some of the questions possibly that Joseph is experiencing. And so this morning we're going to continue in our journey to learn through the life of Joseph in our series as he follows God. And I, I have a simple outline you should have received as you came in. It's really just the breakdown of the two chapters, okay? Nothing detailed there versus Potiphar's house that we see in chapter 39 and then the prison house in chapter 40. Both seem linked and, and, and will pose the question, am I forgotten? And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to walk through these chapters this morning. Would you join me as we pray? I encourage you to pray for me and I'll pray for you, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood and Milton and that we can worship you. And we recognize, we acknowledge again, God, you are worthy of our worship. And now as we open your word, we ask that you would give understanding and clarity, that you would be honored and glorified. That's our hope, that's our desire. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So first is Potiphar's house. And so what I'm gonna do this morning is really just kind of walk through every verse in these two chapters, okay? It, it doesn't take long to read it, but we're just gonna walk through it. So instead of reading the whole thing before we're just going to walk through it. So before I do, just a couple of verses that, that came to mind. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you, forsake you. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Genesis 39 begins in this situation of forgottenness. And, and if I haven't said it yet, I'll say it now. You need to have a Bible open this morning. We're, we're gonna, we provide some for you in the pews and the, the chairs there. It's on page 31 if you need to use that. But we're gonna look at the Bible this morning. So if you don't have a Bible open on your lap, you're gonna be lost, most likely distracted. So I wanna encourage you to have your Bible open and follow with me as we walk through these chapters. 
starting in chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Joseph made the trip to Egypt, we read, and, and then was successfully purchased. And I want to let you let that phrase sink in for a moment, okay? I'll say it again. Joseph was successfully purchased. Joseph, a human being, created in the image of God, was sold and bought by another human being. Like an item that would go, that we would go and get from the market, he's viewed as a commodity. And we should weep as Christians whenever we read of any form of slavery. It should cause us to mourn the sinfulness of sin that we as humans would think it would be ever okay to own another human being, to be sold and traded and purchased. And as Christians, we should never grow tired of repenting of this wicked behavior of our ancestors, no matter how many years have passed. The humiliation that he must have felt, naked, beaten, I'm sure, up now for auction. We should never think lightly of this. A young man, 17 years old, shoved out of his family, I'm sure being very anxious in life right now, Wondering, is he going to survive another day? What will life look like now? We have hope in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of of his Egyptian master. The Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. His, His covenant name is used here. God was faithful to Joseph, even when his family wasn't. God is with Joseph, even in Egypt, in bondage, in a, in a crushing situation. As he suffers at the, the hands of others, the sins of others, he's there with him as much as he's with them in the sunny days at home. And you see this phrase a few times in chapter, the Lord was with Joseph, and it'll be true for the entirety of his life. In the verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. There's evidence in Joseph's life of God. He must have talked about the Lord in some way. He was a faithful witness to God in his dealings. And these verses are clear that Potiphar knew of his religious convictions. He, he knew what he believed in some way. Is your profession of Christ as clear as Joseph's in your workplace? Apparently, Joseph was, was able to give witness clearly without alienating his employer because of the transparent integrity of his life. Friends, let me ask, would your coworkers be shocked to find out that you're a Christian? Verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was, all, was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. He was trusted. Joseph was given a lot of power in Potiphar's house. He was effectively given the title COO of a major corporation. He wasn't a personal assistant. He was the chief operating officer of this major business over all that Potiphar had. And Joseph used his power so that a society that did not acknowledge his God and master, who did not acknowledge his God, would be blessed by the use of his power that was given to him. And it's amazing to consider this, church. God is using Joseph in a nine-to-five job. And he gives him more influence and power so that God's name would be honored. God does this so that others would know about God. He calls Joseph to be very successful businessman. And then later, he'd be called to a government leader who uses his administrative skills to mount a massive hunger relief program that saves his family and thousands of other people. This is how God is working at the end of Genesis. God can use men and women in every sphere of life to do amazing things for the honor and glory of God. This is what Joseph does here. He uses his power. He isn't used by his power. You see it? He he took power, but he was never taken with power. And the same, though, 
could not be said of Potiphar's wife. She's a much different story. At the end of verse 6 there, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph was a good-looking guy, is what he's saying. This phrase is used only one other time in Genesis, in chapter 29, and it's talked about his mom, Rachel. So good looks run in the family. Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. This is a very blunt and wicked thing that she asked. She was literally demanding sex at the moment. She didn't request. She demanded. It was a power move by her. Although she didn't have the position of authority that Joseph did, she most certainly had power because her husband was the master of the house. Joseph was tempted because when someone over you with power tells you to do something that you know is, is wrong, you realize that the consequences will be great when you don't do it. In verse 8, we get his response. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's response to her was to share truth with her. He speaks out against sin that she demanded of him, and he does it at work. He speaks the words of God, confronting sin with truth at the workplace. And I find his response to her so compelling and necessary for us to consider today. He refuses to sleep with her because of the trust that has been placed in him concerning the position that he talks about the trust that her husband has for him concerning her because she is Potiphar's wife, not his. And then he ends with his loyalty to God. See, Joseph takes this issue very seriously. This is a big deal. He calls this action that she's proposing a great wickedness. Why? Why is this a great wickedness? You and I, we need to pause and think through this. And, and you and you might say, of course it's a sin. She's married to somebody else, and that's right, but that's not all. It's a wicked thing because she's not only married to someone else, she's not married to Joseph. If we're to understand a biblical sex ethic, we need to briefly look at 1 Corinthians 6. So I want you to turn because Paul's going to do a riff on this story here, okay? 1 Corinthians 6. He's going to teach us how we should view sex in a God-honoring way. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 15. If you're using the Bible, it's on page 898. I want you to see it in your, in your Bible there. Verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul isn't specifically talking just about adultery here, although it's included. No, he's talking about two people who are not married to one another or anybody else, and they need to understand that sex is still wrong. Why? Because sex was created by God to bring two flesh into one. God designed it this way. And it's the most intimate act there is to the point that it, it, the fact that all of life should be joined together. It's a whole life oneness. The Bible says sex was created to say to someone else, I belong completely and exclusively to you in every aspect of my being. All of me is given to you and all of you is given to me. It's incredibly intimate. The most intimate relationship that you'll ever experience on earth. James Boyce once said, one of the devil's tricks in his campaign to promote sin and limit godliness is to call sin something other than what it is and thus make it sound less objectionable and perhaps even desirable. And so the world says it's just, it's just sleeping around. It's no big deal. God's word says otherwise. But then Paul says in verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual morality. You see, see the, the callback now to, to Genesis 39? 
flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person commits outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And see, he's, he's calling our attention back to Joseph. So turn back there. See what Joseph does. Genesis 39, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He ran. He fleed. He runs naked, probably. The garment he left probably wasn't a coat. It's probably a robe. Again, a robe gets Joseph in problems again. Joseph was convinced that this sin was too great. It was, it was too important to let down his guard and to succumb to it. And his motivation was simply God. How, how, how could he trample on God in his life? And this thought didn't come from himself. He didn't, he didn't conjure it up by his good thoughts about what he wanted. No, it was from God. He knew this. He believed this. He was taught this because he knew God and he believed in him. And friends, when we sin, we simply want something more than we want God. I'm going to pause again and I want to give you preparation. You need to write that down. So whatever you're doing, you got a pen, your phone, everyone. Ready? I'm going to say it again. I want you to think about this today, okay? When we sin, we simply want something more than we want God. Make sure you got that. Everyone get that? I literally will check on this after the service. When we sin, we simply want something more than we want God. You need to think through this today. It says, day after day, she would come at him. Day after day, he would refuse her. But it only takes one day, one opportunity to fall. Just one situation where the rubber meets the road. Will, will Joseph succumb or will he run? And he runs. And how did he do this? Self-control, right? And for some of you, you've been taught self-control is like this. It's, 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 it's this talking to your heart. Okay, okay, heart. I see these desires, they're, they're going to get you in trouble, so suppress them. Push them down. Shove them deep. Step on them. And, and, then, and then if you keep them low, eventually they will fade. Maybe that's what you've been taught about what self-control is. But that's not what happens here. Joseph is not looking inside himself to suppress his desire. He's looking outside to enhance his desire for God. And what is his ultimate argument for not sleeping with her? It's a sin against God. You see, he isn't looking inside of himself to see if he has enough power or strength. No, he's looking outside. And he sees this temptation, this woman. He's, remember, he's, he's 17, he's 18, he's a, he's a young man. He's a good looking. I'm sure she wasn't the only one that hit on him. Struggling to, to be pure. And he has this woman now coming on strong. And he doesn't look within himself. Instead, he stares at God. And he says, how can I trample on God in my life? Where is, it? Where is his eyes? They're not in himself. It's not a mounting of willpower. I just got to be stronger in myself. And he stares at God. He reminds himself of God. He had someone bigger in view that caused him to have self-control. It's his love and his adoration for God. Let me give you an example here. We see it a different way with his father, Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? Last week I shared the story how Jacob sought after Rachel. And in the story in Genesis, he works for her seven years. Hard labor. It's incredible to think. Seven years he works for her. Seven years and I'm sure in those seven years, he had moments, he had opportunities where he said, I just want a vacation. I just want a break. I just, I just need some time off. But he doesn't say that. It says that he worked and worked. And when he finished, do you know what he says of that time of work? Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, 
that seemed to him but just a few days because of the love he had for her. Sorry, that phrase astonishes me. Seven years of work that seemed to him just like a few days. Why? Because of self-control, of the love and adoration he had for her. Because of the love he had for her. See, the the only way you can have self-control to battle sin is of love. And I'm sure he wanted many things. He desired many things but nothing like the love and desire for Rachel. So self-control is not the will to suppress the desire of your heart, but it's the desires of your heart being reordered. It's by overmastering a passionate and supreme love of God. This is what self-control is. And But to have biblical self-control, you have to have a desire, a love that is supreme over everything else in this world. You need something that captures your imagination and captures your heart. You need a love that is bigger than anything else in this world can offer. To put all other loves in this world down in its place. We have to have something better to love, to to be adored, that should capture our attention every moment of every day. And it can't be found on this earth. It can only be found in Jesus. How do you view Jesus? How do you view God? See, answering that question will guide you in your battle with sin. Charles Spurgeon, you weren't going to get away with hearing from Charles at some point today. He says, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought sin is simple, small. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I ever kicked against him. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind and so good and so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. The question is, how do you think of God? Have you spent any time this week thinking of God? See, we tend to make ourselves the center of our worlds. We tend to think a lot of ourselves. Martin Luther once defined sin as Man curved in on himself. I think that is an accurate representation. Sin is ultimately selfishness. Whether you sin with struggle and and pride or lust or gossip or lying or anything else, it's, its power comes from the fact that you want something more than you want God. And if Joseph had valued safety, if Joseph had valued comfort or position, more than he loved God, then he would have given in to Potiphar's wife. See, it's a simple thing. So I ask, do you love God? Do you love him more than the sin that you're tempted with? Are you enamored with the beauty of God? And it's not the outward beauty. Isaiah 53 says he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no, no beauty that we should desire him, no Jesus is beautiful because he was a man of sorrows on our behalf. And he bore our griefs on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his death on the cross, we can finally have peace with God. That's why he's beautiful. And when you dwell there, and when your mind and your heart dwell on the cross and what Jesus Christ did for you, you will understand self-control because your heart is enamored with a much greater love. One who died for you. One who redeemed you. One who purchased you out of the pit. It's by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, friends, until Jesus becomes your only one, you will continue to struggle. I know that single people here this morning might be saying to me, Jeff, you just don't understand. You're married now. You don't have any struggle with sexual temptation. And my answer is, ha! I remember sitting in in a discipleship group when I was 16 or 17 with men that were three times my age and them explaining to me to passionately love Jesus because the temptations won't go away. And I remember thinking, you don't understand 
you're old. Man, I'm old and the temptations haven't gone away. If you really believe that when you get married, all those temptations will fade away, you're not, you don't understand. It's not true. And I'm happily married to a woman who loves the Lord and who loves me. And I want you to know that the desire we have for ultimate love is something good. Even married love cannot possibly satisfy. See, God didn't make us so that we could be completely and fully satisfied in that. Do you really think God would make you so that you could be satisfied without him? He didn't. You think that would bring honor to God if he's somehow later replaced when you get married? It's not how it works. And so single people, unless you love Jesus more than anything else in this world, you won't find marital fulfillment will squash all the sexual temptations. A reality in your heart must be your love for Jesus Christ. And to squash sexual temptations, you need a greater love. If you have Jesus, if he is the greatest thing you desire above all else, then, then and only then will all the desires in your heart will be ordered correctly. This is the thing I'm continuing to have to learn and relearn. I have to love Jesus more than I love my wife. That's hard. I love my wife. But this is the will of God for me. Everything else will be ordered correctly. Married friends that are here, you need to love God more than your spouse. That's an ordered life. Everything else will fall into place after we love Jesus best. And single friends, again, I'm not going to let you off the hook yet. If you're not pursuing Jesus with all your heart, then don't you dare look to find a spouse to fulfill those longings. They won't be able to do it. They're not built for that. Only God is. Seek Jesus first. Be fulfilled in him. Be satisfied in him. Keep growing in your relationship. It will serve you well. Well, I've only went through 12 verses and you're concerned, I'm sure. We're gonna keep moving. What happens after Joseph flees? Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us, literally to, to insult us. And he came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. She's, she's probably at this point holding on to the clothing and she's lying about what happened. The verse 15, and as soon as he heard that, I lifted my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that the wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And here we have Joseph back in a pit, wrongfully charged, forgotten it seems. Temptation was part of God's plan for Joseph. He was sovereign over it. God could have easily made sure that Potiphar and his wife had a happy marriage. He could have made Joseph really, really ugly. He could have made it so Joseph would never be around these situations ever, that he would have a hedge of protection around him. He allowed, though, Joseph to be around sin, to be around sinners. Now, don't get me wrong. God did not tempt Joseph. The Bible is clear. We looked at that in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's us. It's in us. Joseph was tempted, we're sure, but God was with him. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, you need to realize there is always an option not to sin. Always. And in verse 21 here in chapter 39, we're told again, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was one who did it. 
The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He shows us yet again, God is with him. God doesn't helicopter Joseph out of trouble. He remains with him through it. And the covenant word hesed is used in verse 21, steadfast love. It means an act with love or loyalty to a covenant partner in need. He's, he's teaching us. God is teaching us through this. Now, Joseph doesn't hear these words. They're, they're there for us as the reader. And it's there to communicate to us that God is with Joseph. And he's with us too. Right? It's in his name, Emmanuel. What does it mean? We sing it at Christmas time. We should sing it during the summer. Emmanuel, God with us. He promised that he would be with us, even to the end of the age, right? As with his people. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong or courageous. Do not be frightened or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. So that's chapter 39, Potiphar's house. Let's look at chapter 40, prison house. Verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed defense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. So if we quickly recap the story, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into a pit. He's purchased and placed in a high position by Potiphar, second in command. But his wife couldn't keep her hands off him, falsely accuses him, and now he finds himself back into the pit. And Moses, as he writes this section of Genesis, informs us that some time has passed, and it's approximately 10 years since Joseph was first sold into slavery. And spoiler alert, Joseph will be in the same place as he is at the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter. Okay? But he's not alone. King's cupbearer and the baker have been thrown in the prison. These officials usually became confidants. Sometimes they held even political power. So this might have been hairy if, if one of these would have been swayed in some way by enemies of the king. We're told that they're imprisoned for crimes against the king, so perhaps the king thought they were out to get him. We don't know. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and his dream, each dream with its own interpretation, more literally, a solution. And verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So here's Joseph going along with his business again in prison, and he notices the men. He picks up on something. He's actually looking at them. He could have easily ignored them. I mean, didn't Joseph have enough to worry about himself? You see, suffering tends to turn us in on ourselves. We begin to focus only on our fears, only on our worries, all of our issues. All of our pain becomes all-consuming leaving us with no time, no energy to think about anyone else. Instead, we tend to live in such a way that we want others to notice us. We want others to pay attention to our suffering. And the last thing is wanting the burden of someone else's pain and suffering. We have enough on our own. But that's not what Joseph does here. If anyone from a human standpoint, he had the right to be self-focused because of suffering. It had to be Joseph, but he doesn't do it. He's not turned in on himself. He, he thinks of others as more important than himself. In verse 7, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Friends, perhaps God has brought suffering into your life to bring you in contact with someone who needs to see God's work in your life. Someone shared with me a number of weeks ago of their mother who, who had hurt their leg and, and they weren't thrilled with the prospect of rehabbing. And they were placed in a facility and, and through that, God used her to share 
her hope of God with someone and they heard the gospel and they were saved. They weren't happy about what God had done. But God was sovereign over that. See, God truly knows what he's doing in our lives. And so Joseph comes in contact with these two guys and they want help. Now it's interesting to consider what Joseph is doing, what he's believing at this moment. You see, it's a it's another opportunity that, that Joseph is tempted. He's already been tempted to sexual sin with Potiphar's wife. Now he has a temptation to believe that God doesn't care about him, that God has forgotten him. He's tempted to not trust God anymore. I mean, he could have easily said, God isn't answering my prayers. Why would he answer the prayers of anyone else? We don't see that from Joseph. Instead, he knows his God and he still trusts in him. He steps out in faith to be a help and a resource to these men. Do you see the confidence in his words? He says, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. He's saying, the answers are with God and I know God. Tell me your dreams and God will give the answers. He still trusts in God's ability to work through him. And he holds on to his faith that God will do something, that God is actually up to something good in his life. So verse 9, the, the cupbearer, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it's budded, it blossoms, shot forth, and the clusters ripened to grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So he gets the answer from, from Joseph, and it's favorable. He's, he's downcast because of what happened to him, but Pharaoh will lift up his head, and he'll be restored. But then Joseph makes a request to him. He says in verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness has said to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that should put me into the pit. And twice now Joseph has been thrown into a pit for doing nothing and you can feel the weight of pain in his words. He, he's ripped from his home, stripped of his family and he just wants relief and he asks. Well, remember there was two in prison in verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he says to Joseph, I also had a dream. He sees how well it went for the cupbearer, so he thinks, I want in on this too. He says, there were three cake baskets on my head, verse 16, now verse 17. In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Not the same as the cupbearer. It's like a Hitchcock movie or something. You see, Joseph listens to both of their dreams and gives the solutions to what will happen. And in this, he's declaring God's word. He becomes God's spokesman and he passes on God's word, which is a message of both life and death. It's a message of life for the one man and death for the other man. God's word always has that double-edged quality to it. It's both good news and bad news simultaneously. This is the gospel. It's the good news to those who have life and bad news to those who are perishing in their sins. Joseph told the truth and how hard that would have been for him. I mean, does anyone really enjoy being the bearer of bad news? But that's the job of a Christian. You know, when you share the gospel, you're sharing the bad news. There's also good news in that. The world, though, doesn't want to hear bad news. We just want a positive. They want a God who is only loving and never threatens the wicked. They want many ways to get to God rather than a declaration that there's only one way to God. There's only one, Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of people in this world who love to tickle the ears of those 
who are eager to listen so that their hearts will never change. People want many options. People want many opportunities. But God is not inclined this way. That's why the scriptures say over and again, behold, today is the day of salvation. In fact, George Lawson has stated it clearly for us. Divine providence is no under, under no obligation to be equally kind to us all. And that prosperity and adversity, life and death, are both distributed to men by one who has the right to do what he will with his own. Do you believe that God has the right to do what he wants rather than doing what you want? And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent, to turn from your sins, from your way of life that only trusts in you and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. The story ends here, verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of the servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You ever been forgotten by someone? Joseph would spend two more years in prison. It would be 13 years that Joseph would spend in prison. And in that, when we think through that, we realize that God's timetable is not the same as ours. But friends, God's timing is perfect. And we need to be convinced of this. If the cupbearer had remembered Joseph sooner, he would have remembered Joseph too soon. And this might be hard to hear, friends, but it's true. God's timing in our lives is always perfect. He's never late. God never makes mistakes. Joseph had to spend this time in prison. You know, it got me thinking, when, and this may seem silly, but when is the right time to eat a banana? Have you ever come home from the store with a bunch of bananas, a bunch, and they're all green and hard? Have you ever tried, I remember as a kid, opening it thinking, ah, oh, mom says, wait, I don't want to. And open it and eat it. How'd that go? Is it any good? Why is it not good? Because it's not ripe. It needs to sit on the counter for a few more days. And when the banana sits there, something happens. An enzyme breaks down the starch and the fruit into smaller sugar components called glucose, making then bananas sweet. But in the process, it makes the banana look even bruised and beat up. You know, if you take the banana when it's green, it won't be sweet or soft. Instead, it'll be flavorless and hard. It needs more time to ripe. And from this side of this story, Joseph wasn't ripe yet. He wasn't ready. And he would need to be ready. If you read the rest of the story, and please do this week, he would need to be ready to serve. He would be, need to be ready. The passage I read at the beginning of the service, he would need to be ready to forgive his brothers when the time came. And if Joseph is still hard, if he's still soured in what transpired, then he wouldn't be ready to serve God by forgiving them and saving his people. So God knows what he's doing and so Joseph stays in prison two more years. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been waiting and hoping and praying and enduring for a long time. And you're tired of waiting for God to bring to fruition all the plans and purposes for your life. And you feel like that God has thrown you into a pit and he's walked away. 
And perhaps you feel like you've been dealt a bad hand. Perhaps you feel like you've done all that God has asked and you're still getting the short end of the stick. If you're doing the right thing because we think that we'll earn God's favor or we'll somehow force God to give us what we really want in life, then, then our faithfulness doesn't pay out. And then we become resentful and bitter and angry at him. You know, if we're obeying God to get something from him in return, then that something is what is controlling our hearts, not God. And we need to be reminded this morning that God makes no mistakes. And if he hasn't answered yet, it's not the right time. There are no accidents with God. It may not make sense to you right now. Just realize, though, it matters more that it makes sense to God and his plan for your life. God's wisdom and love and care are infinitely higher and more profound than yours. So friends, keep walking and waiting on God. You know, you won't learn how to run a marathon by reading a book. I've said this to a few people, but I hate running. I hate it. So when I meet people that love it, I just think they're strange. I don't even get it. But how do you become a better runner? So I've heard. You run, right? You endure, you go through pain. I mean, runners talk about this. I've heard it. Like you run and then you have this wall you break through and it's easier. And I'm like, no, no, you're lying. You gradually build up more and more strength. You can't get character from reading a book, though. Character comes through enduring difficult times, walking with God, waiting on him. And how do we grow in our character? We walk through the trials and the suffering that God brings and allows into our lives and we love him and we read his word and we spend time with him and through the suffering our character grows you know if you read the end of this book Genesis 50 and you read Joseph man he's become quite a guy God's not done God has grown him tremendously in his character all because of the suffering and the pain how do you love God more? You spend time with him. You have to treasure him more. And that only happens the more you know him, the better you know him. So friends, you have to read the word. Did you read the Bible this week? I'm not talking this morning when I read it to you. Did you spend time in the word this week? Did you spend time praying? Well, we will slowly become more compassionate towards others and weaknesses and joyful in the midst of our pain and discouragement and filled with hope that God's good purposes are there for a reason as we spend time with him and his word and in prayer. See, God ultimately gave Joseph the understanding that sins, that the sins that the other people committed against them were under God's sovereign control. I, I said those words, I read the verse in Genesis 50 and that, and that, these sins that actually work for his good and for God's divine purpose. And this understanding only came through the suffering that he experiences in these chapters. So friends, don't run from these challenges. Lean into God. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. And Father, I don't know all the situations that are happening in life for those that are seated here this morning, but I know that you do. And I'm constantly amazed, God, how you can work in my life and at the same time be working at millions of others. And that the same level of care that you have for me, you have the same for your children seated here. God, I recognize people came in this morning, your people, and brought in burdens and struggles and pain and suffering. And some perhaps are even asking why or what you're doing. And I pray that you would encourage them through this, through this story of Joseph's life through your word. And even though they don't have the answers to, to the pain and suffering, 
May they look not to have comfort in answers, but have comfort in you. May they lean even more into you by spending time in your word this week, by praying, and also by sharing their life with others. And it's amazing that you planned things the way you did, that you, you didn't leave us by ourselves. You, you, you gave us the spirit to, to dwell within us, but then you gave us the church. You gave us other people who love you, who want to serve you and know you. Father, help us not to disregard these people. Help us not to leave this place and not talk to another person this week. Help us to, to lean into those relationships. Help us even to linger just for even a few minutes after service to build a relationship or a friendship with someone here. And help us to pray for one another, to hold up one another. God, you made it this way. Help us to see the good in that. Help us not to run from it. And God, I pray for those that are here that do not have any of these relationships and they don't have a relationship with you. Perhaps they've known about you their whole life, but they've never turned from their sin. They've never turned from trusting in themselves and, and trusting in what they can do. God, I pray that you would give them faith to believe, that you would convert them, that they would be your child this morning through the power of your word and the work of the Spirit and help us in that end. Help us to love you by serving others, by sharing this glorious gospel. Help us not to hoard it to ourselves, but to give it out freely. We thank you, God, that you love us and you care for us. And that you're working in our lives. Remind us of that this week. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.